Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music, and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Kibbe, I'm a drummer, turned comedy singer-songwriter, and now apparently a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free, that's right, for free at scottcowie.com. The music business is a tough business, even at the highest level. All the guests that have been on the podcast and we've been fortunate enough to speak to some of the most successful musicians in the world will testify to that, okay? Now... Metallica, the biggest heavy band of all time. 2001 is the year their bass player Jason Newstead leaves the band. They start filming the progression and the documentation of their forthcoming album. They call up a therapist. You heard me right. They call up a therapist to deal with their day-to-day issues that they've got, the personal issues, their life coach. And we're going to speak to that man. And this is a fascinating story. Dr. Phil Toll is going to be on the Talk Music podcast with myself, Scott Cowie. Some Kind of Monster is the film that is released in 2003. So that two-year period, it takes Metallica to record this album. Within the movie, the singer James Hetfield leaves, walks out the door after a massive argument, and we're going to talk to Dr. Phil about this, okay? He leaves, he goes into rehab for almost, well, close to a year. Now, this is one of my favourite films ever. The film that I'm referring to, of course, is Some Kind of Monster by Metallica. Dr. Phil is on $60,000 a month. $60,000 a month to help Metallica through this period of time. Now, James Hetfield, the singer... Heavy metal god, right? I think it's fair to say. He describes Dr. Phil as an angel. And you can watch the movie. It's one of my favourites. I'm fascinated to speak to Dr. Phil. It's going to be a good one. Before we get to an interview with Dr. Phil, let me just address one thing, ladies and gentlemen. I have had tweets. I have had emails. I've had Facebook messages. Smoke signals. People have been reactivating their Bebo accounts and they've been getting in touch with me and they've been saying the same thing. Scott... What has ever happened to that game that you're calling I'll Name a Song and then you play it? You played it with Sandy Tom a couple of weeks back. Twitter went absolutely crazy. CNN reported on it and we've not seen it since. Well, I am going to address this right now. I'm in the studio right now with Mr. Graham Duffin from Wet Wet Wet. How are you, Graham? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you, Scott. That was a fantastic introduction. Did you get any semaphore, perchance? Well, we'd got everything but mm. that, yeah, but we're expecting that tonight. Excellent. Now, 1989, you played Glasgow Green with upwards of 80,000. You played Celtic Park, sold it out. You've sold millions of records. You're now on a top music podcast. Is it fair to say this is on a much higher level? Oh, this is on a completely different plane. A whole new stratosphere. That's a whole new experience for me, in fact. Let's get down to it, ladies and gentlemen. I'll name a song, and then you play it, Graham. And the game that we're calling, I'll name a song, and then you play it. Right, so so am I going to need a guitar? Right, hold on. That'll do fine. Here we go, here we go, got a guitar. It's so impromptu, you wouldn't believe it, ladies and gentlemen. This is the game that we're calling. I'll name a song and then you play it. I'll name a song and then you play it. I'll name a song and then you play it. I know that song you just played. Cause ten seconds ago, I just said it. 
We're with Graham Duffin here, and I'm going to completely randomly come up with a song off the top of my head, and this man is going to make an attempt to play it. Sandy Tom get three out of three. We're going to try and get five out of five for Graham. She's at the top of the charts. Graham knows a little bit about having number ones. He's had a good few, so here we go. Graham, let's do it. Um, the EastEnders theme. Ah, uh, fuck, he's it now, no. jazz chord at the end no messing about I've song actually never never ever played that before in my life and I'll probably never ever play it again you just never know when you might be back on the top uh, music you just never know what's going to happen let's go for another one uh, let's go with Yellow Submarine by the Beatles I'm actually quite scared right now I have to say ah uh, what keys uh, uh, uh. Damn good. That was really impressive. That was really, really impressive. This is completely ridiculous. But great fun. Celtic Park sold out. Everybody singing along back your songs. Uh-huh. Is, this, is this a feeling similar to that? Is this just this is, get the same? Well, as we said before, this is a different league. Um, uh, yeah, it's actually quite terrifying. You sitting there going, play me this. Right, let's continue. Where are we? I don't know. Happy birthday. Oh, what the... Happy the, birthday to the Stevie Wonder version of the the uh, the, the, the Happy birthday to no no the the um the, the crap one. This is so damn good, right? Okay, Graham's is just pushing. This is just raising the bar. How the tune went. This is raising the bar, right? Okay, Uh, last one. Uh, The last one has got to be the same last one. We've got to make this a continual theme. Smoke on the water. Oh. That was too easy. We need a jazz version. Can you give us a jazz Uh. version? on the Top Music Podcast playing I'll Name a Song then you play it I don't know was that four out of I can't remember it was Phil Marks anyway Graham Duffin on the Top Music Podcast we're now going to get back to Metallica's Therapist okay we've now come up to high now we're going to get dead dead serious Mm. with Dr Phil Graham thanks for being on I'll Name a Song and then you play it on the only podcast in the world that's that's, that's, that we, we edit on my in my bedroom thank you
Yeah. Bye. I'll name a song and then you play it. I'll name a song and then you play it. I know that song you just played. Cause ten seconds ago, I just said it. Hey, this is Janine Leah. I'm a singer-songwriter from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm on the same record label as Scott Cowie, FBoo Music in Los Angeles. I'm going to read out the famous and inspirational mission statement written by Dr. Phil Towell in which he reads to Metallica at the start of the movie. Here we go. We come now to create our album of life. We honor the brilliance of each and the value of one. Throughout our individual and collective journeys, sometimes through pain and conflict, we have discovered the true meaning of family. It is both our mission and our destiny to manifest this idea. Like it or not, we have become a family for those brothers and sisters rejected, excluded, estranged, disconnected, disenfranchised from each other and themselves. As we accomplish ultimate togetherness, we become healers of ourselves and the countless who embrace us and our message. We have learned and we understand, and now we must share. Dr. Phil Towell, 2001. I'm Janine Leah. Now back to Scott Cowie with the interview. Okay, back on the Talk Music Podcast with Dr. Phil Towell. How are you, Phil? I'm good, everybody out there. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Phil, we'll get right down to it. Now, we all know you from the Metallica film Some Kind of Monster, as we said at the start of the podcast. But is it true that you worked with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine prior to that? Is that a fact? The, the uh, story goes like this. If you want to take a, I'll do the short version. Uh, Tom Morello was and is a devout St. Louis Rams professional football fan, right? He loves the Rams. And I was working as the coach of the Rams, as the mental coach of the Rams during their uh, championship run back in 2000. And I met uh, Tom in, I think it was 98 or 99, and he was invited to sit in the same uh, booth that, that I was, uh, which is the coach, head coach of the, of the Rams booth and um, suite. And because his, the, the head coach's son-in-law was Steve, um, Steve Barnett, the vice president of Sony Records and the subsidiary of that record company had Rage Against the Machine on it. Is that too long, everybody? I'm, no, I'm just that, getting warmed up, everybody. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. That's great. We spoke about Metallica and how they're one of the biggest bands in the world. You've worked with them at the highest possible level within music. Um, you have given that band therapy. Someone else who's going through a real difficult period of time at the moment um, is an artist, Justin Bieber. Um, very pressured situation he's under, similar to Metallica. He's got a lot of responsibility. Uh, we know he listens to the show. What advice would you give the J-Dog if he's listening in, Phil? Oh, well, you know, Scott, I, I hesitate to give advice to anybody I don't know, okay? Given that caveat, I, I believe, based upon only the, what I've read, that he needs, he's, he's crying out for help. And he needs to go, I think the good place to, to do it and start is rehab. To, or a place sequestered away from the, from the fame that is intoxicating, that's, that's uh, creating a problem for him. He's not managing his success. He's not managing his life. Um, he's lost perspective, Scott. 
I don't know what the people have thought about, you know, around him are thinking, but they ought to be thinking about taking good care of him. And I don't know whether they are. It doesn't look like they are, or maybe they've lost connection with him. Justin Bieber, like anybody else, needs help. And this is a this is actually a platform. Let me speak to a platform that I feel about anybody who is in a, a position where they um, fulfill their, their dreams. Your personality has to come along for the ride. Most people handle the uh, substance of their art form. They're, they handle, they, they know how to get better. Let's say in their, if it's music, they know how to get better playing music, presenting music to the public, recording. They, they know, need to know how to do, they know how to do the technical aspects of something well. They learn that. But there's no book on how to be a celebrity. There's no book on how to be famous. There's no book on how to manage oneself. That's a really difficult thing. And the people around you, God bless them, have your good intentions with an asterisk. If they're making money off of you, then they want they want the meal ticket to continue. When I've been working with, and I had a great, you know, I really felt respected and I'm very respectful towards the management Cube Prime Management of Metallica. It's also uh, Rage Against the Machine and some other uh, people I've worked with as well. They they knew the important. They they did not milk their clients, and and some people do, and it's not that they do it intentionally. They're all good people in management. They start out that way, but if you don't pay attention to the growth of your the human being that is your you know, that is your meal ticket, then you're going to look the other way. And heavy metal, especially, has a persona that requires people to, to go crazy. And and fans, our fan base, now I'm preaching, okay, but you can cut it, you can edit out all the, whatever you want. Our, as fans, we have a responsibility because we we love our celebrities until we decide to move on. And when we do, we don't give a shit. We don't, you know, we, we walk away from them. Mm-hmm. And we expect our, our heavy metal guys, I mean, metal is, cha- you know, we don't, we don't hear a lot about metal now, in a way, but we expect our metal people to be uh, acting like their music and walking the threshold or the edge of being crazy, walking the edge of self-destruction. We like that about their music. And if they act like it in per- as, as people, we don't care as long as we get what they they're giving to us now let's get straight down to it. i want to talk about one of my favorite films of all time some kind of monster this is a this is a two-part question here at the start of that film you and the members of metallica are sitting in a hotel in san francisco and you read out the now famous mission statement now the band at that point were going through a difficult time do you think a mission statement was something that was necessary to get them back on the right path? And secondly, what was going through your mind when you put that statement together, Phil? I think, uh, Scott, what was happening there is the guys needed some direction in terms of like aligning their purposes. And you, when I'm working with a business or any place, you know, you have a mission in mind. And uh, even if it's, uh, you're creating a particular song, you have an idea in mind. You channel your energies towards a mission, you get more, you get more effective results. 
That's great. That's really, really interesting. So let's talk about the relationship with Metallica. Now, it's interesting to think that at the start of that film, James Hetfield was perhaps the more reluctant individual of the group to buy into your theories and your philosophies. But towards the end, he seemed the most dependent upon you. Let's talk about um, how that relationship developed over a period of time, Phil. Uh, James, uh, I, I think James was reluctant when he re realized that we were going to get into some deeper things about ourselves as individuals. In my work, you can't, my work depends, performance, high performance in whatever industry depends upon how well you manage your own personality and you manage your success. Metallica wasn't managing their, their individual personalities well, they weren't managing their, their team well, and they weren't manage, managing their success well. So, Hetfield, uh, I think everybody was was pretty responsive in the beginning, but uh, James, as he got closer, as we got into the stuff, Scott, as we got deeper into the issues, started to expose some of the things that were, were going on inside of him and let him rehab. So the resistance wasn't against me personally as much as it was against the the the, the fear of having to expose issues. Make sense? It absolutely makes sense. One thing that I picked upon um, when watching that film is the relationship between Lars Ulrich and James Hetfield. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Now, the lot's been written about their relationship, but you were right at the heart of it, Phil. Let's talk about that. Um, there was a lot of friction. You were right there. Talk us, talk us through it. You know, I, I saw their relationship. Look, they formed the, the band, okay? Uh, what a, they're the pioneers. They, uh, it, I see, I saw the relationship sort of like a love affair that's gone bad or hit a bad spot. They weren't communicating with each other. They weren't, uh, they weren't complimenting, supporting, loving, expressing positive feelings towards each other. They gotten hardened along the way, and, and they needed marriage counseling. In that sense, the two of them, right? So they. I think they have a, a really good, respectful relationship now at this particular point in time. I haven't seen these guys in a while, but they, but the aftermath of the work certainly indicated that they were respecting each other, and the differences that they had weren't so pronounced, and what differences they do have as personalities, were, those differences were not damaging the relationship. One of the most crucial parts of the film, Phil, was where James and Lars Ulrich has had that massive argument. Now, we're going to listen to a little bit of audio footage from that right now, and we want to get your thoughts on it, Phil, so here we go. It's pretty straightforward. You know, the guitar's it's, you know, it's a little stock, so I started trying to introduce some kind of edge to it on the drums. Those things we throw out to each other are complete bullshit, you know? It sounds too stock. It sounds too normal to me. That I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. You're saying that so you can get your point across about doing a drum beat. I mean, you know, it doesn't hold any water to you. It doesn't. I think it's stock. What? Which part of that is unclear to you? I think it sounds stock to my ears. I mean, you want me to write it down? I think oh, yeah. it, I feel it stock, I I okay? So I No, when you say you're telling me what to play right now, you're telling me you should play with what Kirk's doing, and I'm telling you it's stock. Dude, fine. You know what, guys? 
Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, alright, instead of hammering on each other? I mean, we're in yeah. moods and we're not gonna get well, in All we wanna do is pick today. a f***ing fight and... You I know, don't wanna pick a fight. This is so silly. You're just sitting there going, I'm in a really pissy mood and... And I f***ing told you straight up that I was. Right. And what are you trying to do? I'm not trying to do f***ing sh You're just sitting here being a complete d You're You're really helping matters. You're really good at that. I was straight up with you, and I told you I'm in a shit mood. And what have you been doing? Picking at me all night. Come on, guys. We got better things to do. Right? Yeah, I do. I, I do. Very intense stuff there, Phil. Let's talk about your thoughts of that scene and looking back at it, your experience. When I look at the film, I, I immediately reacted to, when I saw it, I recognized that that was exactly what was likely to have happen. It, 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 James could not keep the stuff inside of him that was bothering him. And he had and his only way, James's only way of handling things at that particular time, or not, I shouldn't say his only, but the, the over the course of his life, the pattern that he used to handle that kind of conflict was withdrawal. Right. Okay, now, James Hetfield, he goes into to rehab over that period of time. That must have been very, very challenging. It's very difficult to watch as part of that film there, because at one point Lars Ulrich says, and then they were two, he's referring to obviously Kirk Hammett and himself, and um, he even states that this is like the unravelling of the band. You were there, you're having to keep it together. Talk us through perhaps the most difficult part of that band's uh, life. Yes, so the, the toughest thing, first of all, James went to rehab. Everybody was somewhat relieved and supportive, of course. We, Bob, Kirk, uh, his family members, myself, went down to, I'm not sure Bob went down, but we went down to the treatment center during the, what's called the family week, the rest of the band and, my, and myself. We went down to, to family week, and we, we connected with him at that level. We saw what he was going through. He shared with us. We shared with him. There was closeness and connection, but at that time there was also some question in James's mind about whether he wanted to continue the band. And, and that's because when you're going through something as transformative and dramatic as rehab, you, your whole value system, Scott, is thrown up in the air. You don't have, you know, you don't know who you are. You're, you're cracking the, the egg of discovery. And, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, personal stuff that he was struggling with. So when, he got when we when at a place where, uh, as I said, we we worked with him, but we worked with what was going on down there. And then, as we pulled away and started working on our own for Lars, it was like, how long is this going to last? Do we really have a band anymore? And it began to be more and more frightening for especially Lars, but I'm sure for Kirk as well. And so, what we did with that was we we tried to keep focused on what we were doing to work alongside. We worked on the stuff that was going on inside of them while James was working on the stuff that was going inside of him. That's the way we kept our focus. Absolutely. You might have already answered this question. My question was going to be, what was the most challenging point in your relationship with Metallica? Was that that period of time, Phil? Was that a separate incident? What's your thoughts? The most challenging, Scott, the most challenging part might have been the very beginning. Right. Uh, when I met with him the first time before the film was on. So, so the, I met with him for three months or maybe four months before 
we started the shoot. Mm -hmm. The film was the film crew was set up to promote the next album, once to show to kind of bridge them from the place where they were slipping off the radar a little bit, trying to keep them in front of the public eye, and and it was going to be about the making of the next album. All right, so. When I the first meeting I had with Metallica was at the Ritz Carlton Hotel in San Francisco. Everybody got together uh, after Christmas, and Kirk came in and had some presents with him. Uh, Jason comes in and says, "I need to, sir. Excuse me, sir. I need to talk with my my buddies in the band by myself." And at I was next. I so I went to, into the room next, and I could hear what was going on. For about 10 minutes, there was a big fight going on, not physical, but Jason was saying, I'm not going to be in this band anymore. And that was throwing the whole thing up for grabs, which is a very dramatic moment. I tried to respect them from their, I wanted their, their privacy. I didn't know them. They didn't know me. I wanted them to do what they needed to do. I didn't feel like barging in on But finally, after about 10 minutes of that, I got up the courage to go back in. And you know, I said, look, guys. I'm here to help you with something like this. This is why I'm here. Let's talk. And it was a, what seemed like that proverbial long silence before Lars finally said, let him in. You know, so it was like, it was like, that was so difficult because Scott, I would never have been on that project. That would have been it. I mean, they could have said at that particular point. So that gave you confidence, Phil, when he said, let him in, you felt as if you were part of that family. I felt I was I was felt I was obligated to do my my work, and I was glad they had the opportunity to do it. Absolutely, Jim. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jason Newstead there. It's interesting to know that he's actually in that film. He's been interviewed, and he seemed very opposed to the idea. Um, and you mentioned it there of someone coming in. And I wasn't going to bring this up, Phil, but as you did, looking back on that film and hearing his reaction to Metallica bringing in a therapist. What were your thoughts when you watched his um, negative reaction to that? I don't, I, you know, I know I, I try to put myself, part of my responsibility as a human being and a part in terms of my work is let me put myself inside of Scott. Let me put, my, put myself in front, in, inside of Lars in perspective. Let me put myself inside of what Jason's thinking. Jason was, he made a move that had been calculated, but it was spontaneous as well. And he he broke the you know he he left the group, he and then he wanted to come back, and and as a part of we were already into our process and that's not on the film, you know and that's not on the film. He wanted to come back and I understand why he wanted to come back and the band didn't want to have him back after that because there were a lot of hard feelings that hadn't been processed. I think that was a factor. I think he didn't he didn't know me. You know he never got a chance to know me except in the moment where. You know, really, the, the couple of three moments when he came back and the band, you know, the band decided it wasn't they wanted to move on. So I, I, I didn't take it personally. And I don't I don't know whether I never have talked to Jason about it, but I, I'm sure that he had mixed feelings about having someone come in from the outside. Uh, they all did something. Hang on a second there, Phil. We're just about to advertise some of our previous episodes. Now, we have got a lot of good previous episodes, it's fair to say. Go and check them out at www.scottcowie.com. Click on podcasts or 
www.scottcowie.com forward slash podcast either way works episode one Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols episode two Huey Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals episode three our good friend Sandy Tom episode four Brian Ray the guitarist for Etta James Sir Paul McCartney to name but a few episode five Orianthe phenomenal female guitarist episode six head spokesman for NASA Bob Jacobs and on this episode we're talking to Dr. Phil the man who is a life coach for the biggest heavy band of all time Metallica scottcowie.com go and check all the episodes out previous episodes now people feeling a little bit apprehensive about the idea of being filmed in that fly in the wall fashion one scene that's also a little bit difficult to watch and it's also very um, emotional too was the scene with Dave Mustaine. For anybody that doesn't know, that was the original guitar player in Metallica who was sacked in 1984, but for the first time in a number of years, he meets up with Lars Ulrich, one of the founding members, of course, the drummer in Metallica, and they have an interesting discussion. Phil, you were right there in the room. Can you talk us through that? Well, you saw it, and I, it was it was well, you know, it it was natural and evolved. You know, Berlinger and Sanofsky did a great job in their whole film. Of, you know, they filmed a lot, but they did a really good job of getting capturing the pointed moments, and that was a, a historically a pointed moment for Mustaine and for Lars. It was too bad that James wasn't in on that, especially. But the but they, I. You know, I, I, there hopefully, and I, I, hopefully, I did a good job most of the time. Uh, one of the, one of the things I wanted to do was to, when, you know, when people are working things through, I want to leave that alone. I want to be able to help guide them, but not influence the outcome. All right, because the the outcome is theirs. Mustaine, you know, had some real hard feelings and some sad and feelings and, and hurt, you know, wounds that never were, you know, never were healed. I think that went a long way for him to him uh, feeling healed. But uh, I, and I think that I haven't talked to them since then, but them since then, you know, I think they've been on tour together. So I'm sure that their relationship is, is pretty much in a healthy place right now. But it was difficult. It was painful. Yeah, it was. It looked very, very. If it was difficult to watch, so it must have been difficult trying to to kind of get the guys together to to be on the same page, and uh, hopefully, um, the film will have helped them uh, build the relationship back to to the point that it is now. One part of the film as well, I want to talk about Bob Rock, a producer who seems like such a nice guy. Seems like a great guy to work with, Phil. Great, great human being. There is one um, point, you're trying your best. The band are coming in to record another day to to, to rehearse and record, of course, for the St. Anger album. And you've posted up various different um, inspirational signs everywhere. Um, Talk to us about what what you had written on those bits of paper to inspire the band and why the producer Bob Rock tore them down as soon as he uh, walked in that day. I think, I don't know. I've never asked Bob why he did that. I think there's fr- there was you know there were periods of frustration going on at different times, and you know frustration spilled out on all of us from all of us to uh, the rest of us. And this was a you know long project. We were in we were together when uh, James came back. We were together for almost a year every day, you know, for 10, 12 hours a day. So there was a lot going on, and as you would expect in those situations, there's the conflict arises, and you know it was by no means peaceful. And I was by no means always 
uh, doing the best I could too. Right. One final thing about the film, another quite poignant moment, Metallica feel as if they can carry on um, without your guidance on perhaps a day-to-day basis and the full-time schedule that you had with them. They have a discussion themselves and think we can carry on without Phil. They talk to you. You seem apprehensive about um, letting that relationship continue without you. You want to go on tour with them and uh, you express your feelings to them directly. What was going through your mind at the time? That's a great question, Scott. And, and I would say it this way, looking at back at, back at it now, First, I, first of all, I did a lousy job of managing that situation, okay? Secondly, I had, uh, the, I'd like to believe that my strongest investment was making sure that when I left, when I leave a project, it's in the place where it needs to be. Facts will bear me out that, that there were issues that I knew needed to be addressed that hadn't been addressed yet. Uh, and, I, I w- and they were later addressed. When I worked, I came back again and worked with them. But there are things that in my, you know, my profession, just like in your profession, where you see things you see that other people don't see or things you see that other people don't necessarily agree with. So I don't think I handled that well. Uh, I also was a bit ambushed because I was invited to stay um, by one of the members. And, it more, and so when so the expectation was and I brought it to everybody's attention, I said, hey, let's let's define what I'm going to do going forward. Okay, because I have to make a decision personally. I've got other things I need to do. And so it came out. I, I was expressing spontaneously my unhappiness with that situation. I don't think personally that I mean, some people have said that you, you, you shouldn't get close to people. It's not a psychotherapeutic thing to do. And in traditional psychotherapy, it isn't. But this wasn't psychotherapy. This was coaching. And it was a nobody has done something like this where you live with some, you know, people on it, on it, and you follow their every moment all the time. I still do some of that kind of thing in my work because you get closer to the real life situations when you take it out of an office and you put it into the people's where the people are. Okay, but I think I, I think that was, you know, if I did it over again, I would have I wouldn't have been so stubborn about it. I, I was just I was caught off guard and I and I reacted like a human being, hopefully. And that, and we healed it up afterwards, I believe. So, it was just on the film. It was more of a dramatic moment than maybe uh, it, 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 it. There wasn't a chance to show the, the, the how we worked it through. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that um, to a degree anyway, um, how you were working with that band for such a long time and you perhaps felt uh, close to them and you didn't want to kind of leave it at that. I mean, how how, how could you, you know? Exactly. Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Very, very insightful. We hope you've enjoyed being on the Talk Music podcast and no doubt we'll chat again. Scott, so appreciative of the invitation. Everybody out there, you know the man, when you have to check it, check something out that's going on the scene, Scott's your guy. All right? Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Fantastic interview there with Dr. Phil, Metallica's life coach. Can you believe it? Now, I'm here in the studio right now with a band called Waterlight. I was recording my podcast in one room, they were in the other room, and they're with me right now. How's it going, guys? Yes, good, good. Now, these guys are playing alongside myself on the 20th of March in Malone's Bar in Glasgow, Sucky Hall Lane. Get yourself down there, £5 a ticket. They're on before me. It's going to be a cracking night. More information at www.scottcowie.com. 
Their song is going to be the last song that we play here in the podcast. What's the song called, guys? It's called The Vault. The Vault. Check it out, everyone. We'll see you next week. And this song is produced by Jack Hughes.